<laughs> ho, ho, ho. Joy and goodwill to everyone. Here we are again with our Worcester Talking Magazine. Welcome to this 2018 Christmas edition of the Worcester Talking Magazine. And as always, it's been recorded here in Colin Chance House, deep in the heart of Worcester, and my name is Barry. As you all must know, the Worcester Talking News and Magazine are all recorded, processed and sent to you by volunteers. And I'd like to thank all, especially Janet Weaver and Carol Hartle, also Ben Kent, who puts everything we record here and more on on the ever-growing Worcester Talking newspaper website. All right, thank you all right. Round the table with me today are two gentlemen and a charming lady, and they are... Brian and Ellen. And Kate's just disappeared out of the room, so she'll be back here shortly. Thank you all for coming, and now... Uh, I believe, I believe they've all brought their, along their own stories and we'll be hearing them later. Right, next we have a list of events that have been that happened in December's past. Brian, if you'd like to read a couple, then Alan and so on, until we get bored of the whole thing. Certainly. First date, December the 6th, 1492, when the island of Hispaniola was discovered by Christopher Columbus. Today, this island is divided between Haiti and the Dominican Republic. Jumping on to 1877, December the 6th again, at his laboratory in West Orange, New Jersey, Thomas Edison spoke the children's verse, Mary had a little lamb, while demonstrating his newly invented phonograph, which utilised a revolving cylinder wrapped in tinfoil but it recorded sounds. Um, bring, bring us up a little bit more to date. December the 11th, 1936. King Edward VIII abdicated the throne of England to marry the woman I love, he said, a twice-divorced American named Wallace Warfield Simpson. They were married in France on June the 3rd, 1937, and then lived the rest of their lives in Paris. December the 13th, 1577, Francis Drake departed Plymouth, England in the Golden Hind on his voyage around the world. Coming up to December the 14th, 1861, in Britain, Prince Albert died of typhoid at Windsor Castle. He was the consort and husband of Queen Victoria of England. Following his death, the Queen went into an extended period of mourning. On December the 23rd, 1888, Dutch painter Vincent van Gogh cut off his left ear during a fit of depression. December the 25th, Christmas Day commemorating the birth of Jesus of Nazareth, although this exact date of his birth, the exact date of his birth is not known and it has been celebrated on December the 25th by the Western Roman Catholic Church since 336 AD. Also on Christmas Day, 
In 1066, William the Conqueror was crowned King of England after he had, he had invaded England from France, defeated and killed King Harold at the Battle of Hastings and then marched on London. On Christmas Day also, Isaac Newton celebrated his birthday. He was born in Woolsthorpe, Lincolnshire, in England, in 1642. He was a mathematician, scientist and author, best known for his work Philosophy Naturalis, Principia Mathematica, on the theory of gravitation. He died in London and was first the first scientist to be honoured with burial in Westminster Abbey. December the 1st, 1919, Lady Nancy Astor became the first woman in the House of Commons. It was, I believe it was her that said to Churchill, if I, was, if I was married to you, I'd give you a glass of arsenic. And he said, yes, madam, and if I, you were married to me, I'd drink it. <laughs> Quite right. <laughs> yeah. Um, the, uh, December the 1st, 1942, the Beaveridge Report was published in Britain, envisioning the welfare state, including insurance from the entire population. Uh, December the 1st, 1990, England was connected to the mainland Europe for the first time since the Ice Age, as engineers digging a railway tunnel under the English Channel broke through the last rock layer. Jumping up to 1980, sad date, December the 8th of that year, John Lennon was assassinated in New York City. But then, jumping forward to 1987, same date, December the 8th, President Ronald Reagan and Soviet Russia's General Secretary Mikhail Gorbachev signed the INF Treaty, eliminating all intermediate-range and shorter-range missiles. It was on December the 9th in 1992 that Buckingham Palace announced the separation of Prince Charles and Princess of Wales Diana. December 14th, 1918. British women voted for the first time in a general election and were allowed to run for office. December the 15th, 1995, European Union leaders announced their new currency would be known as the euro. Remarkable, isn't it? December the 16th, 1653, following the defeat of King Charles I in the English Civil War, Oliver Cromwell, leader of the parliamentary forces, was declared Lord Protector of England. And on December the 16th, 1773, the Boston Tea Party occurred as colonial activists disguised as Mohawk Indians boarded British ships anchored in Boston Harbour and dumped 342 containers of expensive tea into the water. December the 27th, 1831, Charles Darwin set out from Plymouth, England, aboard the ship HMS Beagle on his five-year global scientific expedition. Darwin collected fossils and studied plants and animals, gradually beginning to doubt that many diverse species of living things had sprung into existence at one moment, creationism. In 1859, he published on the origin of species by means of natural selection. December the 29th, 
1170, Thomas Beckett, Archbishop of Canterbury, was murdered by four knights acting on orders from England's King Henry II. And on the same date, Rudyard Kipling was born on, in 1865 uh, and uh, he was born in Bombay, India. He was a British poet, novelist, short story writer and best known for his children's stories such as The Jungle Book. OK, I think that's enough of that. We might come back to a few later on. But to put us back in the Christmas mood, here's some uh, school children with, uh, it's, uh, with a song. It's called Light Up the Fire. Money, as we all know, is an important factor in our lives at Christmas. But how did money come about in the beginning? Brian, you have some information for us. Well, indeed. Definition of currency, a medium of value that can be traded for goods or services. Now, many words in English can be traced back to a Latin root. However, the story of the word money is rather more complicated than most, reaching all the way back into the depths of Roman mythology. It starts with the invasion of Rome by barbarian Gauls who sacked the city. The remaining defenders shut themselves up in the citadel on the Capitoline Hill, locked the gates and hoped the Gauls would go away. But the Gauls had other ideas. Climbing up the crags that surrounded the supposedly impregnable fortress, the 
Gaulish warriors were on the point of slipping over the walls when they were noticed by a gaggle of geese that lived on the capital and were sacred to the goddess Juno. The geese started honking. So loudly, they woke the sleeping defenders who, led by the splendidly named Marcus Manlius, managed to repulse the attacking raiders. Now, ever afterwards, according to ancient theories, Juno was known as Juno Moneta, meaning Juno who warns. When, years later, the Roman mint was established in the temple of Juno Moneta, the epithet came to be associated with all things financial and became the root of our modern word, money. Thank you, Brian. Pantomimes, too, are a popular form of entertainment at Christmas, especially for children. But they started out in quite di- they started out quite differently. Alan, please explain. Yes, um, and this is something I didn't know myself. Um, a traditional English drama with a fairly tailed plot and a strong emphasis on broad farcical comedy. That's the definition of a pantomime. The ancient pantomime, from the Greek pan or everything and nemesis or imitation, was a hugely popular form of dramatic entertainment in Imperial Rome. Accompanied by a chorus of singers and an orchestra who kept time with clappers attached to their feet, an actor or actress would use a succession of masks to dance out some melodramatic story using gestures and hand movements to express the actions and emotions of its characters. But the pantomime was certainly not family entertainment. The stories were usually mythological, but there was often a strong erotic element which kept the punters flooding in. Mime, which was a very similar to pantomime, took this eroticism even further. At the festival of the Floralia, mime actresses would perform stripteases on stage. And the emperor, Elagabalus, who was said to have murdered a room full of dinner guests by drowning them in rose petals. He spiced up the the traditional mime on the subject of adultery by insisting on realistic sex scenes. Thank you. See, pantomimes are completely different then. And we've got a completely different one for you tonight. Tonight we have for your entertainment a new pantomime called Alex in Wonderland. Uh, The parts played will be Brian will be the storyteller and sometimes himself. Alan will be the white rabbit, and also sometimes himself, and I will throw in the odd line here and there. Okay, gentlemen, Alex in Wonderland. Hello, my name is Alex. When I finally reached the age of three score and ten years, my grandchildren all pestered me for stories from when I was young. Eventually, they started to ask me to write some of them down. Well, this is one of the stranger ones that happened, if I remember rightly, when I was 14. My sister Alice was several years older than me, and I remember well the time when Mum asked Alice to look after me for the day. God's sake, I thought I was 14, I didn't need my sister to look after me. Nevertheless, Alice was reluctantly forced to take me for a walk in the woods with some of her friends two boys and another girl. I didn't know what a gooseberry was until that day, 
but my sister soon made it quite clear to me that I was one. I might have been a bit slow in those far-off days, but I suddenly realised why my mother wanted me to go with them, the cunning old cow. We all sat in the shade of some trees, and straight away one of the boys took out some cans of beer from a big knapsack he'd been carrying on his back. This is a bit of a deviation from the original story, isn't it? Beer? Oh, come on, Brian, let's get on with it. I suppose so. Right. But beer in a pantomime? Hmm. As my sister and her friends opened their cans, the boy with the beers asked Alice, Shall I give Alex a can too? Alice was reluctant to say yes at first. Come on, give the boy a treat, Alice. He might enjoy it. The boy looked at my sister and I saw he had a bright glint in his eye. He had a sort of nudge-nudge-know-what-I-mean look about him. My sister looked coy but nodded her head. Then boy asked me, Have you ever had a beer before, Alex? No, I lied. Well, well, I was 14, of course, I'd had a beer, but I hadn't had anything like the Carlsberg special brew he gave me. They were very, very strong indeed. I soon found that out after I'd finished the first one. Go on, Alex. Have another one. Enjoy yourself. Before I could say no, he tossed another can over to me. I also noticed he was sitting closer and closer to my sister. And as I drank, I saw his arm was slipping slowly around her waist. They began to stare into each other's eyes. By the time I'd had three, or was it four cans, I felt very woozy. I decided to go for a walk to clear my head. My sister didn't even notice I'd gone. She was kissing and good knows, knows what else with her boyfriend, as were the other couple. I didn't want to look. I didn't want to be a gooseberry. After I'd walked into the wood for about five minutes, I sat under a tree and I soon fell asleep. After a while, I was woken up, but by what? And then I saw it. A fully dressed white rabbit with pink eyes was hopping towards me where I was sitting. Strange, I thought, rubbing my eyes as the... Rabbit hopped past me. I could see he was looking at an old pocket watch. I thought I should be more surprised, shocked even. However, after four cans of special brew, I failed to be very surprised at all. After all, Brian, what's so unusual about a fully clothed white rabbit looking at a pocket watch? Ha! Ah, oh, come on, please, Alan. I'm just trying to read this script. I try to be professional with whatever I'm given. However, I think you're right. I'm sure most rabbits today would prefer a wristwatch, as we do. Oh, sarcasm, Brian. How we laughed. Shall we get on with the script now? Yes, I suppose we'd better. We're up to where you come in as the white rabbit. So off you go. I hope you've got a suitable white rabbit voice. Try this for size. Oh dear, oh dear, oh dear. I shall be late, I shall be late. And the Duchess is very, very cross, old lady. Very cross indeed. Oh dear, oh dear, I must rush. I must hurry, for if I'm late, she will have my head. My head! That's the only one I've got. Oh my goodness, I'm late, I'm late, I'm late. 
and I like my head just where it is, above my neck and under my ears. Yes, yes, above my white furry neck and under my nice long ears. Who wrote this rubbish? I'm a well-known, well-respected amateur actor in Worcester. I don't appear in rubbish like this. I've never played a rabbit before. I don't want to start now. Go get on with it, Alan. Anyway, I remember when you played the back end of a donkey in a nativity play a few years ago. Oh, please. I tried to forget that night. Don't blame you. You didn't have any official lines then. No, I didn't. Nevertheless, if I remember rightly, every now and then the whole audience could hear you shouting out from the back there, Mother of God! Oh, my God! Now, why was that, Alan? Um, hmm. Well, that was my arthritis. Yes, that's what it was. My arthritis. And not what you're thinking. So there. Now, let's get on with this pantomime. The quicker we do this, the better. Right. Here we go again. Hmm. I watched the white rabbit hopping away until it disappeared in between some trees. I decided to follow it. I couldn't see it, but I could still hear it in the distance. I couldn't see it, but I could still hear it in the distance. That's your cue, Alan. Oh, oh, all right. I'm late, I'm late, I'm late. I'm very, very late. All right now? Alan, will you please stop messing about and please, please try and take this seriously. Oh, all right then. It's just for you, though. Not for that director. I don't like him. Thank you. <coughs> I had just caught up with the rabbit when I saw it dive into a huge rabbit hole. I could still hear it talking as it went deeper and deeper. Oh, my goodness, I'm late. The Duchess will have my head if I'm not on time. If I lose my head, I won't have my two big floppy ears. That are all the better to hear you with. And my big front teeth. That are all the better to eat you with. Oh, God, this gets worse and worse. We've sidestepped into Little Red Riding Hood now. The rabbit's voice disappeared into the distance and he soon vanished. But not before I heard it say... Oh, bugger this, you can have this rotten head for all I care. And I can take these ridiculous ears off. Alan, you're devi you've deviated from the script a little there. And I didn't like to mention it before, but... Why are you wearing those great big floppy ears in the studio anyway? Well, the director said method acting would help me get into the part more easily. Help me understand how a white rabbit might think and feel so as to make my interpretation of this rabbit sound more believable. And you have to take notice of the director, Brian. Well, don't you? More believable, yes, right. Mm. You've got on big floppy feet too. Also the director's idea? Yes. And do they make an excellent actor like you feel more like a white rabbit with pink eyes? No. Then why, Alan, why did you let him do this to you? Do you sleep with his wife by any chance? No, I didn't. But there was one big reason why I let him walk all over me. And that was? He said if I didn't put on the ears and the floppy feet, next Christmas I'd have to play the rear end of the donkey again. And before the show he promised to take the whole cast out for a curry. That was enough for me, besides my arthritis, you know.
Where's the director now? Where's he gone? He went out some time ago. He had his hands over his ears and he was shaking his head. He also had a bottle of scotch in his pocket. Did he now? OK, then. Let's finish this off. Alan, follow my lead. Uh, um, all right, Brian. What are you, you going to do? Alan, I'm going to put this pantomime out of its misery. Just take your cue from me and our ordeal will soon be over. Oh, thank you, Brian. Thank you so much. Right. Action. Suddenly, I heard the rabbit coming back along the hole again. Oh, no, Brian. Why? Oh, Alan, please, just trust me. Just, just wait, OK, and work with me. Oh, go on, then. Soon the white rabbit was at the mouth of the rabbit hole. He rushed past me towards a clump of trees. But, oh, my goodness, I could see danger there. I tried and tried to stop him shouting at the top of my voice, but, sadly, he didn't hear me. Can you see what I'm doing here, Alan? Can you see where I'm going with this? Oh, I've got you now, Brian. Oh, very good, very, very good. OK, let's do this. Here we go. The Duchess won't get me now. I'm running away. I'm running far, far away. I'm going to hide in the wood, hide in the wood, until the Duchess forgets, forgets I was late. Yes, she'll soon forget I was late. <laughs> she won't get me now, she won't get me now. <laughs> oh, she won't get me... Oh dear, oh my goodness, what do I see? Suddenly there was a loud bang that echoed throughout the wood, followed by another. Ah! The poor old white rabbit had been shot by the farmer who wanted rabbit pie that night. And so, dear listeners, the white rabbit was late for the very last time. And is there a moral to this story, Brian? Yes, how about it's better to be late than ending up in a pie. After all, the Duchess would never have had his head really. It's a children's pantomime after all. And so, sadly, or possibly not, we come to the end of our rather shortened version of the pantomime. I'd like to thank you, gentlemen, for your participation and I hope your reputation as members of the Worcester Acting Fraternity will recover shortly. OK, let's have some music.
It wouldn't be Christmas without a pantomime. And this year, the panto at the Swan Theatre puts a very contemporary spin on an old tale. John Plush went to the rehearsal to meet the director of the show, Ben Humphreys, and found that the clue is in the title. Ben Humphrey made Marion and her merry men. What makes this panto different? Well, I don't think there's another Maid Marian and Her Merry Men uh, in the country. Um, in fact, I think we're probably the first uh, uh, pantomime, certainly this year, the only pantomime, I think, to, to take a feminist, uh, a feminist stance. But I think it's only right and proper. It's about the right time to, to make sure that we're a little bit more relevant in, in the panto world. I think there is a bit of a danger that we're, we're behind the times. Um, uh, and people often sort of cry, it's tradition, it's tradition. Well, tradition moves on and tradition becomes something else and it develops over time. And I think that it's very important for regional theatres especially to remain relevant to, to modern day whilst remaining faithful to the feel of pantomime and the message behind pantomime. I mean, every panto that we've done so far, it's been very formulaic. The man has saved the damsel in distress. Even in the um, Even in the pantomimes that have the female title character so you look at Snow White or you look at Sleeping Beauty they may be the title roles but they're not the hero of the piece and that just somehow seems very uh, unequal um, so what we've tried to do is we've tried to balance it out and bring a little bit more of an equality to the stage really The story presumably is a very different story from that of Robin Hood Well it is and it isn't we still have Robin Hood in it but Robin Hood is a very misunderstood character in the sense that everyone thinks that Robin Hood is this spectacularly uh, wonderful chap but actually he's just taking the credit for all the other good deeds that other people have done and he's just sort of accidentally ended up with this fantastic <laughs> reputation and when Marion finally meets him um, she's actually very disappointed because he's a bit useless he's a bit of a lover not a fighter I think is is the the, the general consensus um, so she takes over the the merry men and um, sort of gives them a bit more purpose and a bit more drive and it's great fun and they have lots of silly games along the way but we've still got the merry men we've still got robin hood we've still got fry tuck maid marion the sheriff of nottingham guy of gisborne so it's got all the traditional elements just told through perhaps a slightly different prism any other gender swaps in that list of characters yes we've got the sheriff of nottingham played by a woman this time um uh it's not unusual to have a female baddie in a pantomime um but it is unusual i think to have a, a what is a traditionally male role the sheriff of nottingham but of course there's nothing to say again that a sheriff can't be female i mean in fact there are lots of uh, sheriffs around the country that are female so it's just taking a little bit more of a 21st century look at those traditional stories now, you're doing a couple of audio-described performances. In Whose idea was it to do that? It, it was kind of one of those moments where I think it was no-one's idea in particular. Everyone just kind of knew that it had to happen. Um, uh, and Because we want to include everyone. Our pantomime is, is it's renowned uh, regionally and it's renowned nationally as being a pantomime that everyone can enjoy. We don't try and go for the, for the, the, the traditional smut. I mean, there are certainly jokes that will appeal to adults on a different level than the children, but... You, we have four generations of families come and see this and we want to include them all and actually if we want to include them all then we need to include other 
people as well who perhaps can't enjoy it in the in the traditional way. So we've got an audio described performances, we've got uh, we've got signed performances, and we're also having a relaxed performance as well for uh, for families with additional needs, perhaps autistic children that need sort of. Uh, lights on in the, the auditorium the pyros are taken out um, so inclusivity is very very important to us and I very much hope that actually going forward if it is a success for the pantomime to have audio described performances that we will then be able to bring that into other shows that we do as well which would make me I mean I just love that I think that would just be spectacular and, and I, yeah nothing would make me happier than to do that Ben Humphrey thank you very much thank you very much Maid Marion and the Merry Men runs until the 6th of January. They've already done one audio description performance, but if you've missed that, there's another on Saturday the 29th of December. That's my birthday. At 2pm at the Swan Theatre. Tickets can be booked through the main box office at Huntingdon Hall or ringing 01905 611 427. I'll repeat that. 01905 Six double one, four two seven. And Alan, what have you brought along? Well, I've, I've, what I'm going to talk about now reminds me of President Donald Trump. Oh God! <laughs> <laughs> now I, I don't usually include President Donald Trump in my conversations, but <laughs> one of his favourite phrases, if you recall, is "fake news." Oh. Now I have a series of little tales here called Remarkable Coincidences. Now, when you listen to them, you might think they're a bit untrue. They might be. They might be fake news. But on the other hand, I'll let you decide. A computer error gave two women in America named Patricia the same social security number. When the two women were brought together in an office to rectify the blunder, it was discovered that They'd both been born with the names Patricia and Campbell. Both of their fathers were called Robert Campbell. Their birthdays were on the 13th of March, 1941. They had both married military men in the year 1959, actually within 11 days of each other. They each had two children, aged 19 and 21. They both had an interest in oil painting. Both had studied cosmetics and both had worked as bookkeepers. It gets better. In 1893, Henry Zeegland ended a relationship with his girlfriend. Tragically, his girlfriend took the news very badly, became distraught and took her own life. Her distressed brother blamed his sister's death upon Henry, so he went to Henry's house saw him out in the garden and tried to shoot him. Luckily, the bullet only grazed Henry's face and embedded itself in a nearby tree. Now, in 1913, about 20 years after this incident, Henry decided to use dynamite to uproot the tree in his garden. Unfortunately, the explosion propelled the embedded bullet from the tree straight into his head, killing him immediately. On December the 5th, 1660, a ship sank in the Straits of Dover. The only survivor was noted to be Hugh Williams. On the 5th of December, 1767, 
Another ship sank in the same waters with 127 souls losing their lives. The only survivor was recorded as Hugh Williams. On the 8th of August 1820, a picnic boat capsized on the Thames. There was one survivor, Hugh Williams. On the 10th of July 1940, a British trawler was destroyed by a German mine. Only two men survived, a man and his nephew. They were both called Hugh Williams. (laughs) Now, Mr MacDonald was a farmer who lived in Canada. (laughs) Nothing extraordinary in, in that until it was noticed that his postcode contained the letter sequence... (laughs) E-I-E-I-O. In 1996, Paris police set out to investigate a late-night high-speed car crash. Both drivers had been killed instantly. Investigations revealed that the deceased were, in fact, man and wife. They initially suspected some kind of murder or suicide pact, but it became apparent that the pair had been separated for several months. Neither could have known that the other would have been out driving that night. It was just a terrible coincidence. Now, from the UK, Michael Dick had been travelling around the UK with his family to track down his daughter, Lisa, whom he'd lost contact with uh, ten years ago. After a long, fruitless search, he approached the Suffolk Free Press, who agreed to help him by putting an appeal in their newspaper. Fortunately, his long-lost daughter saw the appeal and the pair were reunited. The odd thing was, his daughter had been right behind him when the newspaper took the photograph. What are the chances of that? Hmm. A little short one, a 15-year-old pupil at Argoid High School in North Wales sat for his GCSE examinations in 1990. His name was James Bond and his examination paper reference number was 007. Oh, yeah. Just three more. Okay. Double dipping. In 1965, at the age of four, Roger Lussier was swimming off the beach in Salem. He got into difficulties and was saved from drowning by a woman called Alice Blaze. In 1974, on the same beach... Roger was out on a raft when he pulled a drowning man from the water. Amazingly, the man he saved was Alice Blaze's husband. (laughs) A very short one from South Africa. Businessman Danny Detroit made a speech to an audience in South Africa. The topic of his speech was, watch out because death can strike you down at any time. At the end of his speech, he put a peppermint in his mouth and, unfortunately, choked to death on it. (laughs) Hmm. The the last one here is is a bit sad, really. A British cavalry officer, Major Summerford, was fighting in the fields of Flanders in the last year of World War I. A flash of lightning knocked him off his horse and paralysed him from the waist down. He later moved to live in Vancouver, Canada. Six years later, while out fishing, he was struck by lightning again and the right side of his body became paralysed. After two years of recovery, 
He was out in a local park during a hot summer's day. A violent storm blew up and, you probably ahead of me, Major Summerfield was struck by lightning again, <laughs> paralysing him permanently. He died two years after this incident. However, four years after his death, his tombstone was dramatically destroyed. It was struck by lightning. <laughs> Someone's Thank trying you. to tell him something. Yeah. Thanks, Alan. That's great. Uh, now, if I was to tell you Christmas Day will fall ten days after the Ides of December, would you know what I was talking about? Kate here will explain. Kate, please. This is an article about the calendar, which will be starting a new one, of course, very soon. In the ancient Roman calendar, each month had a calends on, on the 1st, a nones on the 5th or 7th, and an ides on the 13th or the 15th. If a Roman wanted to arrange a feast or a meeting, he used these three landmark days to name a date. For example, the fourth day after the ides, or two days before the calends. From the Roman calends, we get the modern word calendar. In fact, our system of 12 months in a year with a leap day every 4th February is directly inherited from the system of ancient Rome. Even the names of the months after more than 2,000 years have remained the same. Here are some examples. January, Januarius, named after the Roman god Janus, god of doorways and therefore of the new year. February, Februarius, named after the Februa, a Roman purification festival held on the 15th of February each year. March, Martius, named after Mars, god of war. April, Aprilis, sacred to Venus, the name is probably derived from Aphrodite, and that's just some examples. Brian, you've got something else for us. Well, a few little observations about various places, sometimes with tongue-in-cheek, some with a little hint of malice. <laughs> the opening line, for example, of um, Bill Bryson's very first book was, I come from Des Moines in Iowa. Well, somebody had to. <laughs> I would believe from this remark that Cleveland in the USA is not perhaps the most desirable spot in the universe. Uh, a suggested motto for the city at one point was, well, you got to live somewhere. <laughs> Mr. Justice Melford Stevenson, speaking to a acquitted um, prisoner, I see you come from Slough. Well, you better go back there. It's a terrible place. Um, in Essex, I see, says Linda Smith, and I do know this, Erith is not twinned with anywhere, but it does have a suicide pact with Dagenham. <laughs> <laughs> Gentleman, well, you've heard of Sean Penn, I'm sure, who claimed that there's a clear difference between yoghurt and Los Angeles in that yoghurt has a living culture. Quite <laughs> clever, that, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. I think we all agree with this one. Suburbia is where the developer bulldozes all the trees, then names the new streets after them. <laughs> the Australian, the then Australian, they do change them very regularly down here. The, Austra the then Australian Prime Minister, Paul Keating, was asked by someone the best way to see Darwin in the Northern Territory. 
In my view, he said, I would say from 20,000 feet up in the air on the way to Paris. <laughs> Some of you may remember Jane Austen's famous comment in Emma Emma about our great Midland city. One has no great hopes from Birmingham. I always say there is something direful in the sound. And much more up to date, Hannah Betts said that when a man is tired of Birmingham, he's entirely right. <laughs> How cruel. But it doesn't just uh, aim at the Midlands. J.H. Keller, once in 1920s, said, Manchester is in the main dull and workmanlike. The majority of its people live between the workshop the racing columns of the newspapers, the organised banality of the music hall and the mean streets. I'm sure that wasn't exclusive to Manchester. Sidney Smith once said, very perceptive this, never ask a man if he comes from Yorkshire. If he does, he'll tell you without asking. And if he does not, why humiliate him? <laughs> Boris Johnson once made a very pointed comment about Portsmouth, of all places. He said, here we are in one of the most depressed towns in southern England, a place that is arguably too full of drugs, obesity, underachievement and Labour MPs. The American comedienne Phyllis Diller once remarked in her view that any time that three New Yorkers get into a cab without an argument, a bank has just been robbed. <laughs> <laughs> Noel Coward observed many years ago, I really don't know what London's coming to. The higher the buildings, the lower the morales. Oxford, on the whole, is more attractive than Cambridge to the ordinary visitor. The traveller is therefore recommended to visit Cambridge first, or to omit it altogether if he cannot visit both. That was Baedeker's Guide to Great Britain in the 1890s. <laughs> Keith Waterhouse once wrote, I do feel that Brighton rather looks like a town which is helping police with their inquiries. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, John Norton the continental United States slopes gently from east to west. That results that everything with a screw loose rolls into California. OK, that's very good. Thank you very much. Alan, go on, keep up, keep up. Just keep going. Okay. <laughs> keep with me on this one. Right. A single guy decided that life would be more fun if he had a pet. So he went down to the local pet store and he told the owner that he wanted to buy an unusual pet. After some discussion, he finally bought a talking centipede, which came in a little white box to use for his house. <laughs> he took the box home, found a good spot for the box and decided he would start off by taking his new pet to the pub for a drink with him. So he asked the centipede, um, would you like to get down the pub with me today? We'll have a good time. But there was no answer. This bothered him a bit, but he waited a few minutes, then asked again, um, how about going down the pub with me? But again, there was no answer from his new friend and pet. So he waited a few minutes more, thinking about the situation. 
decided to invite the centipede out one last time. So he put his face right up against the centipede's box and shouted, I in there, would you like to go to the pub with me? And a little voice came out of the box. I heard you the first time. I'm just putting my shoes on. <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> you got any more? Yeah, yeah, I got it. I got it. Well, give, give us one more then. Uh... One, one more. Okay. Yeah, okay. Um, two sisters, one blonde and one brunette, inherit the family ranch. Unfortunately, after a few years, they're in financial trouble. So in order to keep the bank from repossessing the ranch, they need to purchase a bull so that they can breed their own stock. Upon leaving, the brunette tells her sister, when I get there, if I decide to buy the bull, I'll contact you to drive out after me and haul it home. Well, the brunette arrives at the man's ranch, inspects the bull and decides she wants to buy it. The man tells her that he'll sell it to her for $599, no less. Well, after paying him, she drives to the nearest town to send her sister a telegram to tell her the news. She walks into the telegraph office and says, I want to send a telegram to my sister telling her that I bought a bull for our ranch. I need her to hitch the trailer up to her pickup and drive out here so we can haul it home. Telegraph operator explained that he'd be glad to help her, then adds it'll cost 99 cents a word. Well, after paying for the bull, the brunette realises she'll only be able to send her sister one word. After a few minutes of thinking, she says, OK, I want you to send the word comfortable. The operator shakes his head. How's she going to know? What do you mean? He said, you wanted to hitch the trailer to your pickup truck, drive out here to haul that bull back to your ranch, if you just send her the word comfortable. The brunette explained, my sister's blonde, the word is big, She'll read it very slowly. Come for the bull. <laughs> oh, very good. Yeah, I like that. Okay. Um, Kate, I believe you have a Christmas story. But before you start, um, you mentioned, Brian, you mentioned Oxford and Cambridge earlier. And mm-hmm. I always remember a story about American tourists uh, that were on a bus and they were going past the House, house of Commons. And one turned to the other and said, where's that? And one said, it's either Oxford or Cambridge. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Kate, your Christmas story. This is a Christmas story that might bring back some memories for you. Memories shift, crack, slide over time. Some become more colourful, distinctive and significant. Others retain the power to sting, to undermine, to wound even decades after. We ascribe adult motivations to childish impulses, paint ourselves in a more flattering light. We read novels about childhood of coming age and are seduced into thinking of ourselves as more thoughtful, more original than ever we were. Of all of the myths, that of Christmas holds us most tightly. Ghosts of winter's past, present, yet to come, snag our attention. Chestnuts, roasting, sleigh bells, all things not commonly, in truth, found in Sussex in the 1970s. 
but it is often, aside from the platitudes and clichés, a season of transformation in ways unexpected. My before and after Christmas was in 1970. I was nine, my sisters five and four. I was aware, I must have been, even though I didn't quite yet wish to acknowledge it, that Father Christmas was a wonderful fairy tale. In public, he took up residence during December in the grotto on the first floor of the Army and Navy stores in Chichester. In private, on Christmas Eve, I knew there was a different sort of illusion, that my mother chose, bought and wrapped the stocking presents, and then, at some moment, after the grandmother clock in the hall had chimed the lateness of the hour, my father tiptoed into our bedrooms on Christmas Eve and filled up the three old woollen stockings with gifts. And yet, I was not quite ready to let go of the illusion. Looking back as a parent and in middle age, maybe it was deliberate, this testing of the waters. Maybe not. But on 24th December 1970, I got myself positive proof and was inadvertently responsible for the worst family Christmas ever. My mother's strategy for stocking presents was simply and lovingly delivered. Different but equal. We each had a version of the same thing. Pencils, sweets, socks, a new torch, stationery, this little book or that, hair slides and clothes for Cindy or Barbie. Gifts appropriate to our interests and our ages. Nothing too much, because proper presents came later under the tree. I cared only about one type of present. My October birthday had delivered to me quite the most beautiful doll's house. It was not as grand as those I'd seen in the old toy museum in Arundel or nearby West Dean House, with several floors and a central staircase and figures in period costume, mob-capped servants and whiskered men, the whole life of an Edwardian family, upstairs and down. Mine was a modern house most modest, but it had a clever contraption at the back where a battery could set be set to fire up the lights in every room, and it had a hinged front. But I didn't have much furniture, not nearly enough, and it was two weeks of saving pocket money to buy even the plainest of beds or dining room chairs. What I wanted most of all was the proper old-fashioned stove for the kitchen, for which I'd been saving up for five weeks already. I'd like to think now, through the filter of 37 Decembers, that it was anxiety that was my father, that, that, that it was anxiety that was father to the deed. Given the demands upon his time, how could Father Christmas possibly know how important it was that I was given certain furnishings and fixtures rather than others? That that's what I wanted at all. Even assuming he was fair and even-handed, and my sisters were also given one piece of furniture too, they might not be prepared to swap. This was the era of swap shop. My middle sister Caroline was mad keen on the scale electric and cars, and didn't really care much about a doll's house at that time. A chest of drawers, an ironing board, it wouldn't matter to her. My little sister Beth was already passionate about animals, particularly horses, and would put whatever piece of doll's house furniture she got into the middle of her model farm that was filling most of the playroom floor. But maybe they wouldn't want anything I had to offer. My sisters and I always opened our stockings together on Christmas morning, sitting on our parents' bed. It spoiled things to do it alone and to cheat, fumbling with sellotape and crepe paper in the dark of one's own bedroom. 
By this time it was imperative I knew what lay in store. If I was to be disappointed and not get the stove with its perfectly symmetrical cooking rings, polished rail, double doors that I wanted, I wanted time to be disappointed in private. Forewarned. And what if my sister had things I wanted? A waste, surely. I kept vigil, counting the minutes down, but lulled by the familiar sounds of the central heating clicking off, the sighs and breath, breaths of breaths of the house, the thumping of hot water pipes in the airing cupboard, I fell asleep. When I woke again, all was silent, and the stocking was misshapen and full. I cannot be sure now if I intended to swap the presents all along, but in an old winsiette dressing gown and bare feet, I left my room with my stockings and took took it stocking and took those from my sister's rooms, then carried them to a corner where the light was less likely to be seen by my parents should they have awoken. In front of the old wooden bookcase with the sliding glass doors filled with books, I unpacked each into three separate piles. As I'd expected, there were absolutely equal numbers of presents, although each had a different colour of wrapping paper. I do this still for my own children, even though they are teenagers. This presented a dilemma. If I wished to swap the doll's house furniture, and absolutely I did, then I was going to have to wrap things up again in the relevant sheet of blue, green or white stretchy crepe. They might not quite fit the original size or shape. I'd like to think I paused. We had two pieces each. I slipped from wishing only to know what was to come to the idea that it would be all right to redistribute the presents altogether, equally and fairly. Since I had thoroughly persuaded myself that my younger sisters would prefer sparkling socks, white and red Lego bricks, anything in fact other than doll's house furniture, I could keep all six pieces for myself. How long did this raid on the spirit of Christmas last? I have little sense of time passing now, even less when I was nine. I ended up with three rearranged stockings, colour-coded still and rearranged to suit us all. I always loved and do still love Christmas. The morning of the 25th of December 1970, though, is too sharp, the texture of the memory too rough at the edges. My sisters, generous and excited and not expecting such treachery, didn't notice the slightest shoddy wrapping, the corners of sellotape unstuck, or anything, but my mother did. As I revealed the doll's house pieces, her face seemed to harden slightly. I understood then. There was no possibility of misinterpreting or excuse. She knew precisely what present had been put in which stocking. Without a word, my mother left the torn pieces and squeals and arguments over whether eating a whole chocolate orange before lunch would spoil our appetites and went to see the turkey. Her dilemma, with hindsight, is obvious. She did not wish to spoil things for my little sisters, but she knew what I had done. I cannot remember now when the guilt became too much and I cracked and owned up nor what happened when I did so, only that the sun rose the next day and the one after, with no lasting ill effect. I think I was made to give back my sisters the pieces of wooden furniture and glue that should have been theirs, and in time they found their way into my doll's house. In the way of these things, it has become a part of family folklore, the story be being bigger in the telling, funnier, 
backlit and metamorphosed into an event, but the emotion of it remains the memory of guilt, like a scar. And the doll's house itself? It sits dusty and abandoned, like so many childhood things, in my parents' loft. The battery-powered lights no longer seem so miraculous. The furniture shoddy and workaday. It all seems so insignificant and inadequate as a symbol of a risk taken and a lesson learnt one endless Christmas day in 1970. Um, OK, we always have a quiz and I have a short one here. So this is all Christmas stuff. Uh, and the first one's very, very easy. So I'll ask the question, give a few seconds for them to think about it, our dear listeners, and then... Brian and Alan. If there's the slightest chance that either of us know the answer. Oh, you'll get these. You'll get these. <laughs> I wouldn't put money on that. <laughs> this is number one. In the carol, Away in a Manger, what was the little Lord Jesus asleep on? I've got answers here. A, the bed. B, the hay. Or C, the crib. B. C. <laughs> C it is. Okay, this is two. At Christmas, it is customary to kiss beneath a sprig of which plant? I don't have to even go through, go through the through options. The yeah. Right, okay, we managed to show you, isn't it? <laughs> Wells' greatest product. Yes. <laughs> okay, the mistletoe. answer is mistletoe. Of course it is. Right, this one's a little more difficult. This is number three. How many sides does a snowflake have? Oh. This is A, oh. four, B, six, or C, eight? Eight. I'd guess eight. Six. My mind was a big snowflake. Oh, yes. <laughs> you yeah. got the first two right. <laughs> Right, in the 12 days of Christmas, what did my true love give on the fifth day? Oh, heavens, I rings. Really? Yeah. yeah. Oh, it's yeah. five golden Brilliant. rings. Yes, yeah. yes, yes, yes. Didn't well done, Brian. Didn't a couple of seconds for the people to sorry, think of. <laughs> sorry, sorry, sorry. So keen to get one right. All right, here we go. <laughs> Who helps Santa make toys? Elves, goblins or hobbits? Okay, the answer is? Elves. Yeah, of course it is, yes. What was Joseph's job? Butcher, <laughs> butcher, farmer, or carpenter? <laughs> and the answer is? Carpenter. carpenter, yeah. Right, this is a little more difficult. Who invented the Christmas cracker? George Cracker? <laughs> Tom Smith or John Bell? Three, three, two, one. Your answer? John Bell. John Bell. Tom Smith. <laughs> <laughs> when is the Feast of St Nicholas? The 1st of December, the 4th of December or the 6th of December? Six. Six. Six is right, yes. Thank you. Yeah. Right, we've got two more. What type of tree was the partridge in? You'll know this one. 
a fir yes. tree, <laughs> a pear tree, or a birch tree. Three, two, one. Pear. Yeah, that's right. Right. How many candles are there in a, the tri- in a traditional Advent wreath? Three, four, or five? No idea. I guess How many five. candles are there in a tr- traditional Advent wreath? You're right, it was five. Like, five, yeah. Good yeah. guess, Brian. Just yeah. the size of the thing. That's yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, what have right. we got now? Um, Brian, a yes, story sir. from you. Well, I'll give you a story. I'll give you a personal reminiscence, if you like. It's a little story against myself from many, <laughs> many years ago. Many years ago. It was Christmas time at a party. Um, I was just out of the army, so I'd have been about 20, 21. And absolutely stunning girl was at this party that I was very anxious to impress and entertain and imp- really get her keen on my wit and repartee and so forth. But suddenly out of the blue, she throws at me the question, so who's your favourite group then? <laughs> We're talking here about, what, late 50s. Yes, late 50s, early 60s. Well, this area, one sense of humour gets you into trouble. Because it wasn't only really sense of humour. It was a straightforward question, and I gave her a straightforward answer. I said, well, if I had to really pick one, I think I'd have to say the Amadeus String Quartet. <laughs> well, quick as a flash, another, another girl, another girl in, in the kitchen at the time with her, spoke up and said, oh, you love classical music. Oh, great. Yes, don't you absolutely adore Dietrich fischer Discow singing leader? And I thought for a moment, thought, well, be honest, Edwards. And I said, well, if I am honest, actually, I'm not all that fond of the solo human voice. And quick as a flash, the first girl says, unless, of course, it be your own. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. That was the end of that. (laughs) All right, following that, let's have some more music. Woe is me, I'm the last lack. A tear rolls down my cheek. As I tell the story of Nelly Clack, the bell of Barking Creek. Her hair was golden as the morning sun, except where the black showed through. And her age has been a steady 21 since 1942. And every day she would wield her barrow and behave like a good girl ought. And she'd only stray from the straight and narrow when the fleet was home in port. For a sailor boy, she just could not resist. Her mind and her knees grow weak. And every mantle over miles has kissed the bell of Barking Creek. One lovely evening when the moon was new, she stood at the garden gates. While idly wondering just what to do, poor Nelly met her face. A great big stoker by the name of Bert had come into town that day. And he said, me what a piece of skirts, and carried her away. And she darned his socks and she fried his bacon, scarcely paused for breath. Until one day she was overtaken by a fate that is worse than death. He said, I'm leaving, but I'll soon be back. I'll write to you every week. But we know damn well that Nelly Clack is up the Barking Creek. There's no more to tell of poor little Nell, the bell of Barking Creek. 
<laughs> Alan. Well, I've got a dilemma for you. Uh... This test only has one question, but it's a very important one. Please don't answer it without giving it some serious thought. By giving an honest answer, you'll be able to test where you stand morally. The test features an unlikely, completely fictional situation where you will have to make a decision one way or the other. Remember that your answer needs to be honest, yet spontaneous. Please listen slowly and consider each line. This is important for the test to work accurately. Now, you're in Florida, in Miami to be exact. There's great chaos going on around you caused by a hurricane and severe floods. There are huge masses of water all around you. You are a CNN photographer and you're in the middle of this great disaster. The situation is nearly hopeless. You're trying to shoot very impressive photos. There are houses and people floating around you, disappearing into the water. Nature is showing all its destroying power and is ripping everything away with it. Suddenly, you see a man in the water. He's fighting for his life, trying not to be taken away by the masses of water and mud. You move closer. Somehow the man looks familiar. Suddenly you know who it is. It's George W. Bush. At the same time you notice that the raging waters are about to take him away forever. You have two options. You can save him or you can take the best photo of your life. (laughs) So, you can save the life of George W. Bush or you can shoot a Pulitzer Prize-winning photo, a unique photo, displaying the death of one of the world's most powerful men. And here's the question. Please give an honest answer. Let's make it Donald Trump. <laughs> Would you select colour film or go with the simplicity of classic <laughs> black and white? <laughs> Okay, uh, Kate um, has some information about Advent calendars. So please, Kate, if you would. The Advent calendar. I wonder if any of you have Advent calendars. Anyway, which day should you open the first door of an Advent calendar? Advent usually starts in November, not on the 1st of December. In the Western Christian tradition, Advent begins on Advent Sunday, the fourth Sunday before Christmas, which also begins the church's year. This can occur on any day between the 27th of November and the 3rd of December, so there's only a one in seven chance of it falling on the 1st of December. This year, for example, it was the 2nd of December. As a result, Advent varies in length from 22 to 28 days. The next time Advent Sunday falls on the 1st of December will be in 2013. This is written a long time ago. For five of the next seven years, Advent will begin in November. Not that anyone seems to care. Despite their name, Advent calendars are now firmly established as a secular custom and the first door is opened on the first or the first chocolate consumed on the 1st of December a date whose main function is to remind us that there are only 24 shopping days to Christmas. 
In the UK and the USA, a quarter of all personal spending for the year takes place in December. Counting down the days to Christmas grew up among German Lutherans in the early 19th century. At first, they would either light a candle every day or cross off each day on a blackboard. Then in the 1850s, German children started to draw their own homemade advent calendars. It wasn't until 1908 that Gerard Lang of the Bavarian publishers Reichold and Lang devised a commercial version. It was a piece of card accompanied by a packet of 24 small illustrations that could be glued on for each day of the season. Because it wasn't practical to manufacture a different number of stickers each year, this was the moment that Advent became a standard 24 days long and the tradition of starting the calendar on the 1st of December began. By 1920, Lang had introduced doors that opened and his invention was spreading across Europe. It was known as the Munich Christmas Calendar. Lang's business failed in the 1930s. Hitler's close association with Munich can't have helped. But after the war in 1946, another German publisher, Richard Selmer from Stuttgart, revived the idea. He focused his efforts on the US market, setting up a charity endorsed by President Eisenhower and his family. In 1953, he acquired the US patent and the calendar became an immediate success with Selma earning the title of the General Secretary of Father Christmas. His company still produces more than a million calendars a year in 25 countries. The first advent calendars contained chocolate, containing chocolate were produced by Cadbury in 1958. Advent comes from the Latin adventus, meaning arrival, and it was meant to be a season of fasting and contemplation in preparation for the feast of Christmas. Despite this, it often started with the raucous celebration of St Andrew's Day on the 30th of November. Tandru customs included children locking their teachers out of the classroom, organised squirrel hunts and cross-dressing. An 1851 account describes how women might be seen walking about in male attire while men and boys clothed in female dress visited each other's cottages, drinking hot elder wine, the staple beverage of the season. Two little stories now that from children, accounts from children about different things that I think you might find amusing. This is called Trevor Meets Royalty. The royal visitor, accompanied by the mayor, the high sheriff, the lord lieutenant and other associated dignitaries, walked along the line of children waving flags and holding out bunches of flowers. She looked every inch the princess, beautifully dressed, slim and elegant and with a stunning smile. It was clear she had a rapport with the children, for she would stop and talk to them, bending low, so she was at eye level, shaking little hands and receiving a bunch after bunch of flowers, which she passed back to her lady-in-waiting. At the very end of the line stood a small boy. He had a mop of dusty brown hair and a little green candle was emerging from his crusty nostril. Wide-eyed, the child held two wilting blooms. The royal visitor smiled warmly and took the flowers from him. Thank you, she said, leaning close to him and patting him on the head. And what's your name? Trevor, the child replied. And have you had the day off school, Trevor, she asked, especially to come and see me? 
No, he replied, scratching his scalp. I've been sent home because I've got nits. In the corner of the classroom, a small child sat staring at the stuffed hedgehog in the glass case. What are you thinking about? asked the school inspector. I was just wondering, the child replied wistfully, what it was doing before it was stuffed. My son in primary school spent much time drawing. His teacher asked him about one particular sketch. Who is this? she inquired. God, he replied. But no one knows what God looks like, she informed him. Whether we're one, they see this, replied the child. The bishop had visited my grandson's infant school and let the children try on some of his regalia and hold his precious crozier. Following his visit, the children were asked to write and thank him. Joshua wrote, Thank you for coming into our school, Bishop John. I now know what a crook looks like. This is an account written by a little girl of six called the Owl. The bird I am going to tell you about is the Owl. The owl cannot see by day and at night it's as blind as a bat. I do not know anything else about an owl so I will tell you about a cow instead. The cow is a mammal. It has six sides. A right, left, upper and below. At the back it has a tail on which hangs a brush. With this it sends the flies away so that they do not fall into its milk. The head of the cow is for the, is for the purpose of growing horns so that the mouth can be somewhere. The horns are to butt with and the mouth is to moo with. The legs of the cow go right down to the ground. Under the cow hangs the milk. It has been arranged for milking. When people milk, the milk comes out and there's never an end to the supply. How the cow does this, I do not know, but it makes more and more. The cow has a fine sense of smell. You can smell it far away. This is the reason for the fresh air in the countryside. The man-cow is called an ox. It's not a mammal. The cow does not eat much, but what it eats, it eats twice, so that it always gets enough. When the cow is hungry, it moves, and when it says nothing, it's because it's full of grass. Brian. Well, there are some observations from an American actress, I must confess I've not heard of her, called Misty Trier, um, and the headline of her particular article is that Brits can't do U.S. accents. And she starts with a very topical point. This December, the most famous British nanny in history makes a comeback in the film Mary Poppins Returns. And alongside Emily Blunt as Poppins, the film will star Dick Van Dyke, now 93, whose accent was so woeful in the 1964 original, he's still apologising. <laughs> <laughs> when receiving the Britannia Award last year, he said, I do appreciate this opportunity to apologise to the members for inflicting on them the most atrocious Cockney accent in the history of cinema. <clears throat> he did explain that in his role of Bert, he'd only had one hour with a dialect coach, and that was an Irishman called Pat Mahoney. <laughs> now, we all marvel, especially we Americans, at the legacy of, legacy of classically trained British actors such as Laurence Olivier. But something lovers are not specially taught to do is to speak with convincing American accents. Well, why would, why would they? The Taming of the Shrew wasn't set in Chicago, was it? Now, some accents aren't necessarily bad, but they come and go rather like Jeremy Irons' American accent in Long Day's Journey into Night, which was described by someone I know as 
Connecticut by way of the home counties. Perhaps actors should take a leaf out of Sean Connery's book and not even accept an accent. Just proudly play the only ever Soviet naval captain with a Scottish accent <laughs> in the hunt for Red October. <laughs> then there are actors whose accents come across as caricatures. Damien Lewis's character in Billions sounds like he's doing a Pacino impression, and it pains me to say it, but Colin Firth's Texan accent in Main Street is reminiscent of Mick Jagger's terrible broad country twang in Fawn Faraway Eyes. Perhaps as an L.A. actress who's been hired to do American regional accents, I could perhaps set up as a dialect coach for British actors. I'd start with vowel sounds, which should be as loose as some of the American women in Richard Curtis films. <laughs> They're formed at the front of the mouth and are wider than their lung. Hence, awful and awful can be homonyms. Ditto, don and dawn. If you're one of those Brits with a plum in your mouth, get rid of it. Don't roll your R's like the Scots. American R's rumble like a volcano awaiting to erupt. But don't overdo it. Don't overdo it. You, you want to hear the R, but you don't want it to sound as though you're from our British West Country or a pirate. American accents come in many forms. I'm from L.A., and the Valley Girl accent there is all about boredom. It's punctuated with uptalk and vocal fry, that low-pitched, creaky way of speaking, like the Kardashians. Now, the Midwest accent is nasal, employs flat A sounds. It's slightly Scandinavian, like in the film Fargo. Above all, whatever you say, say it without aggression, because Midwestern folk are so nice. Lots of people think the southern accent is the easiest. It can be a graveyard even for Americans. Just look at Kevin Spacey in House of Cards. The danger here is going too broad when dropping G's or adding A's to things. There are two kinds of southern accents. For example, Burt Reynolds in Smokey and the Bandit sounds worlds apart from Scarlet O'Hara. Now that was a great British success in an American accent. Americans now and even now never guess that Vivian Lee was born in British India. The eastern seaboard is a smorgasbord of dialects. My favourite is the patrician transatlantic 1940s accent portrayed particularly by Catherine Hepburn in the Philadelphia story. Now that accent is only a breath away from being English. My advice for actors looking to make a career in Hollywood is watch American adverts. Studying Iceland and Morrison commercials over here has helped me to identify British dialects. Although I'm still a long way, I must confess from a convincing Yorkshire version, that's very hard. Let's not judge Dick Van Dyke too harshly. After all, if a performance is charismatic enough, it can overcome the dodgest of accidents. E.g. Michael Caine won an Oscar for the Cider House Rules set in Maine. And he didn't even attempt an American accent, so what do I know? <laughs> Alan, can you do an American accent? 
Hey there, Alan. Can not, you do a Not really, accent? no. No. Now hear this. No, go, and, go and try. Try. I want to hear you try. <laughs> <laughs> I love the the American accent from the southern states. Oh, are y'all? Yeah. I remember um, there was a film called The Great Locomotive Chase, and um, I remember there was a young kid on a, on, on a railway engine and he was uh, giving the driver a cup of coffee, and he went, Here's your coffee, Mr Bracken! <laughs> <laughs> and, and someone on, on a railway station uh, said, uh, Do you think it rains today? He said, Right, 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 right. <laughs> we, we, we went into a, exploring into a cave system um, on a guided tour in, in mid-states, I think it was, and uh, when we came out... The, uh, the girl who'd taken down as down for the, the tour spoke to the gardener who was tending some flowers and he, she said something like, Gee, Hank, them roses sure are pretty. <laughs> we were in the southern part of Virginia where it becomes Tennessee down the Sunshine Drive in a little place known as Little Switzerland. We were staying for two or three days and first evening, I went in for our evening meal, a big canteen-type restaurant, and very charming waitress came and looked after us, but she kept coming back to the table and even more than the usual American version of is everything fine, are you folks happy, is everything what you need and so forth. And then Wednesday she just came and stood there and I looked up and said, well, can I help you, anything, anything problem? Oh, gee, no, she says, I just love standing here listening to you folk talk proper English. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Anyway, um, Alan, we've got uh, five minutes to go. Have you got anything short there? Um, yes, I mean, about two or three minutes, perhaps. OK, go on, carry yeah, on. Okay. Carry on, Alan. OK, Alan, just carry on there. <laughs> um, this was advice um, allegedly given to RF pilots during training. <laughs> Every takeoff is optional. Every landing is mandatory. <laughs> if you push the stick forward, the houses get bigger. <laughs> if you pull the stick back, they get smaller. That is, unless you keep pulling the stick all the way back, then they get bigger again. <laughs> Flying isn't dangerous. Crashing is what's dangerous. It's always better to be down here wishing you were up there than up there <laughs> wishing you were down here. The only time you have too much fuel is when you're on fire. The propeller is just a big fan in front of the plane used to keep the pilot cool. Because when it stops, you can actually watch the pilot start sweating. <laughs> when in doubt, hold on to your altitude. No one has ever collided with the sky. A good landing is one from which you can walk away. A great landing is one after which they can use the plane again. Learn from the mistakes of others. You won't live long enough to make all of them yourself. Th this one I love. You know you've landed with the wheels up if it takes full power to taxi to the ramp. <laughs> <laughs> the probability of a survival is inversely proportional to the angle of arrival. Large angle of arrival small probability of survival, and vice versa. Never let an aircraft take you somewhere your brain didn't get to five minutes earlier. 
stay out of the clouds? The silver lining everyone keeps talking about might just be another aeroplane going in the opposite direction. Reliable sources also report that mountains have been known to hide out in clouds. <laughs> Always try to keep the number of landings you make equal to the number of takeoffs that you've made. <laughs> there are sim- three simple rules for making a smooth landing. Unfortunately, no one knows what they are. <laughs> That's advice to pilots. Very good. <laughs> right. We've got a minute or two left, so um, I've got a couple of uh, things that happened in December's, but I'm going to turn them into a bit of a question and answer thing with you two. Oh, here. God, yeah. Um, when it was on December the 1st, the first credit card was issued, but what year? Oh, no idea. 1969. 60 something I'll stop 60 you right 60. there. 1895. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Yeah, it was issued in Britain today. It was, that was uh, December the 1st. It was called The Golden Promise and Guarantee of Honour. Ah. And it was limited to shops in Kingston upon Hull. <laughs> oh, yeah, I remember it. My dad, my dad, oh, told, me it. My dad, yeah, yeah, right. dad told me about it. Dad told me about it, yeah. <laughs> okay, another one. On the 5th of December, but what year, the world's first motor cab fleet started to operate in London. Any Motorized ideas? cab fleet. Yeah, motor cab fleet, fleet, yeah. 1910? 19... Ten? Ten, I thought. Ten? 1897. <laughs> really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah, uh, this, is, uh, this is more in my memory anyway. Uh, December the 8th, work began on the M1, but what year? Oh. 1960. I'd say 60. 57. Was it? Yeah, it was really, yeah. Yeah, yeah anyway... Gentlemen. Ernest Marples. <laughs> yes, that's yes. the man, yeah. <laughs> Time's up, so um, I'd like to say thank you very much to all of you. And I'd like to finish off with this happy song. When it's a sunny day, it puts a smile on my face. I'll sing a song to keep me happy when it's a sunny day. When it's a windy day. It blows my troubles away I'll chase around to keep me happy When it's a windy day Today, whatever the weather We can make the most of our time Today, we're in it together So it doesn't matter if the sun won't shine It's a foggy day It doesn't have to be grey I'll find a way to keep me happy When it's a foggy day When it's a rainy day It's going to happen again I'll make a splash to keep me happy When it's a rainy day Today, whatever the weather, we can make the most of our time. Today, we're in it together, so it doesn't matter if the sun won't shine. When it's a sunny day.
sunny day. When it's a sunny 